Thank you, church, for the welcome. Um, <clears throat> as Chuck said, if you're new here, you don't know me. My name's Brandon. Uh, I get the honor of directing the American side of our college ministry, Christian Challenge. And it's a blessing for me because I was actually saved through a Christian Challenge Bible study in college. And so um, all about paying it forward as God uh, helped me. And one of the ways our team actually desires to do that on the college staff is we go out every Tuesday and we try to talk to students on campus about the gospel. Uh, we walk up to all sorts of people, uh, every walk of life, and we try to get to know them and share the good news. And one of the questions I like to ask when I'm meeting somebody is, do you have a spiritual background or a religion? And I'm always interested when I hear somebody say, I believe in science. Usually my response is, me too. Um, but it's almost like science and religion are at odds in people's minds. And besides that, uh, what does a person actually mean when they say, I believe in science at the neglect of God? Or what does anybody mean, for that matter, when they reject God in favor of observable things, empirical knowledge? Almost always the conversation boils down to a well-meaning belief that one day we as humans will have enough understanding of the world to solve its major problems and answer some of the most existential questions that we face. It's this idea that we'll get there through testable, observable information and experience, and that human progress will win the day. And church, we're really spoon-fed this idea that human progress and understanding is the key to our greatest problems. Now, when you walk down the street and you see a bus and ASU billboards all over and it says number one in innovation, what are they pushing you to hope in, to believe? It's this idea that if we just understood this thing, everything else would be better. If we just knew how the human body worked, we could cure all disease and stave off death. If we could just develop better technologies to solve people's material needs, there'd be no more war. But can knowledge and wisdom, which is the application of knowledge, actually deliver all that we expect of it? Can it bear the weight of our deepest questions and greatest problems? I think knowledge and wisdom are certainly helpful. Knowledge has produced the cell phones you have in your pockets, the air conditioning in Arizona. Thank the Lord for that. Uh, but, and, and wisdom, who doesn't want that? Every culture, every people values experience for a reason. We want to know what to do with that knowledge, how to apply it, Better let somebody else walk through the thorns for you than to do it yourself. But while good, can wisdom and knowledge alone hold the weight of our expectation? And what about even the best kind of wisdom? Godly wisdom. Well, that is exactly what the preacher sets out to understand in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That's our passage today. So you can flip there if you'd like. And we're going to start with just the first verse. 
He says this, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So he begins this with uh, two questions and a proverb. And these questions imply that wisdom is good. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? And the proverb, we, we get this picture in our head. Uh, you can think of two faces. Uh, people who have lived their life for a long time. One face is tired. It's frustrated. It's weary. The other face is soft. It has wrinkles and lines, but they land in places that make you think the person's laughed a lot in their life. Which face depicts the man who lived with wisdom? You see, wisdom is good. It's something that makes life better. We want it. That's what the preacher says at the very beginning of this. It's a good thing. But what about its limits? What's interesting is if you read this first verse in the context of chapter 7 from last week. Uh, The preacher last week was seeking wisdom, and he said it was too far off. Uh, So far off, he says, that in a thousand women and a thousand men, he's only met one person who is wise. His point being, there are no wise people. He hasn't found what he's looking for in wisdom in chapter 7. And the question remains then, will he find it in chapter 8? And so as we look at Ecclesiastes 8 today, we're going to think about wisdom. And we're going to look at it in three separate sections. This is where we're going. Uh, The first two sections are the preacher's observations about life and his reflections on wisdom. In these sections, you're going to see very raw mental processing. (laughs) He's going to make a statement. He's going to go back and forth about it. Uh, Last night when we were in our GC... Allison Wolf affectionately called it the preacher's shower thoughts, and uh, I totally agree. It's the kind of thinking you get when you're driving your car down the freeway, and you're just one thing leads to another. So when we read it and it sounds crazy, that's why. Um, but that's the first two sections: is this observation, claim. He's going to talk about them, go back and forth, and then the last section is the conclusion of the matter of wisdom. So two observations, one conclusion, that's where we're going. And let's read the first section, verses 2 through 9. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So, this first example of wisdom involves how one should interact with the king. 
And the preacher says that wisdom dictates one should keep the king's command. Why? He gives us three reasons. One, God's made an oath with him. You don't go against the king, you go against God. That's unwise. Two, the king does whatever he pleases because he is the ultimate authority. Why question him? And three, who can say to the king, what are you doing? Just imagine that. It's not going to go well. (laughs) And this seems like good advice, right? And it's almost too obvious of advice. Like, why does he need to tell us this? We all know this. We have no king, but we know this because we all have authority over us. Bosses, parents, coaches, teachers, government, no king, but definitely authority. And in general, we learn quickly that it is wise to follow the commands of authority. Because if you don't, you pay the price. This seems like very obvious wisdom. But consider a moment how you interact with authority in your life. Consider for a moment how you see other people treat authority. Is it really as obvious a command as we think? You can think about the man who gets pulled over on the freeway for speeding. The kid at school who fails a paper because he missed the deadline. The child who stares obstinately into the face of the parent. Some of you can relate to these situations. Some of you can relate to all of these situations. (laughs) Because we know in our head to follow authority, but we don't actually take it to heart. Most people in this room uh, can probably relate to this experience too. Mom says, don't touch the stove, it's hot. And what do you do? (laughs) We all touch the stove, yeah. It's almost like when we're told to do something, we do the opposite. Don't punch or push your sister, not punch your sister. I mean, maybe that too, but. And when that happens, as a kid, I just want to push my sister, you know? I just want to push the buttons, right? And so I'd say as we look at human experience, we don't just ignore this advice. We're actually hardwired to rebel against it. Well, wisdom says, follow the king's command. Listen to authority. And as simple as this command is, realize just how much trouble we would actually save ourselves if we heeded this advice. Older parents or grandparents in the room probably have experienced the vindication of this as their children grow up and uh, they begin to raise children of their own and they say to you, you are so right. I can't believe that I treated you that way. Oh my gosh, I, I wish I listened to you. Imagine if we just assumed that truth beforehand. What we could save ourselves from. So listen to authority. Now then, what about the times when we come into conflict with authority unintentionally? The preacher continues in verse 5 with a proverb. And he says this, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. In other words, follow the commands of those in authority. Don't speed, don't cheat, listen to your parents. And it'll go well with you. But if you get caught in a bad situation, 
Wisdom will be your guide to know the proper time and the just way to act. So when a cop does pull you over, an emergency does keep you from turning in an assignment on time. Wisdom, says the preacher, will give you the proper time and the just way to act. Wisdom is the difference between a warning and a ticket, between the second chance and an F. And in the case of governmental authority or the king, it's the difference between life and death. This is good for us to take to heart, church. I think it's good for everyone, but especially for Christians. We ought to be the first to see wisdom in submitting to authority. I know that is not popular. But I challenge you, as you represent Christ, obey your authorities. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So church, how you respond to authority is reflective of how you respond to God's authority, according to Paul. I think that should be enough reason for us to do this. But here's another reason. Uh, Not only is it wise, not only is it right, but we actually witness the gospel as we submit to authority in our lives. Think about what you say to other people about a Christian and what a Christian is and the way that you interact with authority. We can all think of people who react unwisely to authority. The employee who scoffs at his boss when he's asked to do something. The driver who argues with the policeman. I wasn't speeding. The student who talks back to the teacher. The citizen who curses the president. Don't do that. Be wise. And if you do, if you are wise, if you do follow authority, generally speaking, the preacher says it's going to go well for you. You will know the just way and the proper time to act. Even more, you will honor Christ as you display the gospel in humility. These are the benefits of wisdom, so to speak, in the mind of the preacher. But there's more. Look at what he says in verse 6. Remember, these are shower thoughts. He's just going from one thing to another. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The preacher recognizes that though wisdom has its benefits, it also has its boundaries. There are some situations in life that weigh heavy on the wise. And even though wisdom tells us the proper time, It can't tell us everything. It can't tell us the future. The preacher lists four things specifically that wisdom can't help us with. No amount of wisdom can give us the ability to retain the spirit. He's talking about extending your life. We all die. No amount of wisdom can tell us the proper time of death. Can tell us the proper time for everything else, but not that. It can't help the man escape the midst of war. The picture is the man who is literally on the front lines in the fighting. In that moment, wisdom will not save you. And finally, wisdom will not save the wicked from reaping what's coming to him. The preacher concludes that wisdom is beneficial, but it has its boundaries. 
And he observes all this. Human understanding has its limits. And he concludes his search for wisdom in observing this broken world where men have power over men to their hurt. And this almost launches him into his next section. So let's look at another picture of this. Uh, We'll read verse 10 through 14. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So this time, the, re- the preacher applies wisdom to the problem of injustice, a very big topic in our day. And in verse 10, he observes a troubling thing. Uh, the wicked person is buried, and they were praised in their death in the same city in which they were wicked by the same people to whom they were wicked. Have you ever been to a funeral for somebody who just wasn't a very nice person? And you know it. Everybody else knows it. And there's that awkward silence as the family or the friends come up to share about the deceased. And the silence is broken with grand stories and good gestures. All of a sudden, the wicked man was everybody's best friend. And the things people say, what a nice person. What a good man. Heaven just got a new angel. This is vanity to the preacher. Injustice, that the wicked man can live his whole life spurning God. And yet there is no retribution. Even in death he is praised as a righteous man. We get the idea this person isn't just the grouchy sort but they're a prominent person, they go in and out of the temple, that there's real wickedness, real evil in their life. It's bad enough. But listen to what he says, it gets worse. Because of situations like this, the preacher observes that others are encouraged to continue in their sin. He notes that this evil breeds copycat offenders. Because wickedness is not dealt with immediately, men come and go, accumulating, swindling, cheating, destroying. Because judgment is not apparent, they push the consequences out of their mind and they say, I'm doing fine. I have no problems. Judgment is never coming to me. They fully commit to their pride. Church, surely you can think of situations where wicked people have gotten away with wicked things. And it is a sad reality we face in life. 
And yet what is scary, I think scarier than that, is the temptation that when you see wicked prospering in front of your face, there's something in the back of your head that says, maybe I should do that too. Maybe living my life with integrity, maybe following God's law, is not actually worth it. We witness people cut corners, take the easy way out, and we say, never again am I going to suffer. Never again am I going to live with integrity. What's the point? Please don't do that. What does wisdom say to this? The problem of injustice. How does wisdom understand this? The preacher says in verses 12 and 13, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Church, I think this ought to be an encouragement and a warning to us. The wicked person, though they live their life entirely separate from God, uh, will not get away with it. The wicked can't prolong their days. I don't want to get in the weeds with this example, but just think about Ravi Zacharias. He lived his whole life supposedly for God. And now, after his death, his heart became apparent. And his entire legacy, everything he built, leveled by his sin. If you have been wronged or mistreated, the Lord will vindicate you. But this also serves as a warning to us, both to the Christian and to the non-Christian, to those who are tempted to follow in the footsteps of the wicked and to those who presume that they can live their life in sin, expecting that there will be no consequences. Think about your life. Are you tempted to stumble in this way? Do you think, I'll deal with that sin tomorrow. God's fine with this one because I go to church, I'm a good person, I give money, you know. He's fine with this one thing. Church, please do not continue down that path. Let me read to you a warning described in Revelation for those who have this heart towards judgment. It's speaking about um, the great city Babylon and the, the way that Babylon thinks about God's judgment is that it will never come. Hear what he says in Revelation 18, 4 through 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Do you hear the heart of this woman? The pride, I shall never see mourning. Not mourning like the day, but mourning like sadness. She never thinks she will experience judgment. And for that reason, in a single moment, she is destroyed. Wisdom would keep you from this church. Fear God because he sees, he knows, and he will act. Hear the voice here saying, come out of her, my people. Don't fall in lest you take part in her sins. The wise know that the wicked will not last and they fear God. Now the preacher believes this, he knows this, and yet as he looks out to the world, he sees something even more disturbing. So look at verse 14. He sees, almost in complete contrast to what he just said, that there are righteous people who experience what the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who experience what the righteous deserve. How does that even make sense? I talked to a guy uh, the other day. He was really happy to tell me how he became a Christian. And he shared his testimony with me. Um, He also shared some of his frustrations in life. When he was a young man, uh, he married a woman he shouldn't have. A couple years into their marriage, uh, she divorced him and took all of his stuff. His life fell to ruins. And he really didn't know what to do. And he had a friend who was a Christian who invited him to live in his house with his family. And um, according to this man who was sharing the testimony, his friend was a godly man and he saw God working in his life. It was clear. He kept sharing the gospel with him, kept trying to show him the love of Christ. And so eventually, this guy sharing his testimony I should have given them names so you can differentiate. But anyways, (laughs) this guy sharing his testimony, he he came to know Jesus. And so he moved away. He restarted his life. Uh, He started a practice in another state. And basically, uh, he got a phone call from his friend shortly after he moved. It turns out that he, his friend was diagnosed with a rare form of untreatable cancer. He did not live long, and he left his wife and his children. And as this guy was recounting his testimony to me in the way that this man, this godly man who suffered death too young, you know, he was decades removed from this situation, and he was still at a loss for how God could let something like that happen to a good man. Why is it? That righteous people suffer what is deserving of the wicked. And that is the big question. Why does God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Can wisdom understand why God would allow this? I think if it could, less people would be asking the question. As good as wisdom is, even it cannot solve the problem of injustice on the earth. 
So what do we do with this tension? What does the preacher tell us to do with this tension? Let's look at this last section and see his conclusion. Verse 15 through 17. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So how does the preacher resolve the riddle of injustice? He doesn't. The preacher concludes that there is a limit to wisdom. It certainly has its benefits, but there are some questions it can't answer. And as finite beings, the answer he gives us to this problem is if you're wise, it's better not to rack your brain on it, but to enjoy what God has given you. This may feel like resignation on behalf of the preacher, and in one sense it is, but I think his encouragement is actually far from sarcastic. He really means it. Because the reality is our human wisdom can't find out the things of God. We can't know the day of our death. We can't know why the unrighteous are allowed to prosper. If you look at the last three verses, it's clear. He repeats the same phrase, cannot find it out three times. Then I saw the work of God. That man cannot find out the work, that what is done under the sun, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So what's our conclusion in this uncomfortable place, according to the preacher? It's let God be God. Wisdom can't discern all that God does under the sun. So eat, drink, and be joyful. This is mercy from God then. That we should find enjoyment in the things that we can know and understand and find delight in all that God has given us. And church, I hope you take this to heart. I really do. Think about what God has given you to enjoy right now. After church, go home, rest. Uh, maybe before you do that, invite somebody out to lunch, sitting next to you. Love your family. Take your kids trick-or-treating and worship God as you do them. Take joy in these things because it's better than trying to figure out these questions that wisdom can't understand. And this is God's gift to you. And if you take it to heart, you'll do well. I think we have to be okay knowing there are some things we will never be able to find out aside from divine revelation. The preacher is going to continue to seek answers to the meaning of life under the sun in our coming weeks, and we'll return to this. Uh, but before we close, let me offer you something that is a little more substantial than human wisdom. We've learned that wisdom is useful, but it's limited. It's beneficial, but it has its boundaries. And the preacher said, no wisdom can find out the work of God that is done under the sun. And even as we seek to live our lives wisely, there are some problems like death and injustice that we can't figure out. But God knew this. And so he chose to reveal his ultimate wisdom to us, not through what the world 
could find out or understand, but rather through what only God himself could reveal. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What is wisdom? What is the wisdom of God that men could not find out? What is the answer to the problem of death and injustice that goes unpunished? It is the wisdom personified in Jesus Christ. It is not a wisdom we could go find. It is a wisdom that sought us. And church, this is incredible. If you're not paying attention, pay attention to this. In God's wisdom, he took what the world thought foolish, unanswerable, and he made it the means of our salvation. Look at the most unsettling part in our chapter in Ecclesiastes, verse 14. The ultimate vanity of the preacher, what is it? It is that the righteous are made to suffer the fate of the wicked and the wicked receive the fate of the righteous. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. This is the ultimate vanity. But in God's wisdom, that is exactly the vanity He used to be the means of our salvation. Because Jesus Christ is the righteous man who received what the wicked deserve. And when He died on the cross... He was made to suffer the full wrath of God that the wicked deserve. And we who are wicked through his sacrificial death receive righteousness. This is the core of salvation. And to those who are called by God, it is the answer that human wisdom could never give to the problem of injustice and death. How amazing that in a book about wisdom, in a chapter about wisdom, it is the utter foolishness that leads to salvation. Jesus enters injustice and death with us, and he conquers over them for us. And to the world, this gospel is the ultimate vanity and stumbling block. But to we who have been called by God, it is the only wisdom that makes sense. So to the Christian, remember... The only true wisdom that saved you, Jesus Christ. And to the non-Christian, hear the only true wisdom and respond in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we behold this whole world and all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom that could not figure out you and your plans that could not solve our greatest problems and answer our deepest questions. And yet we now see you, God. We behold Jesus Christ, wisdom incarnate, who has taken our death and our wickedness and given us his righteousness. We praise you, God. We ask that you bless us as we consider these truths. And we ask that this day would be glorifying to you. In your name. Amen.